You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Good morning again, Redemption. Good to see y'all. Good to hear y'all. Good to worship with y'all this morning. Um, So you can see more about what's going on in the sermon today, some announcements about what's going on in our church at redemptionhou.com slash today. You can find today's text there as well. Um, There's also a Bible in the seat in front of you. If you want to pull that out, you can. We're going to be in um, 1 Peter chapter 1 today, and we're going to be digging into the text a little more closely than we've been doing in the last couple of weeks. Um, So as joyful and exuberant and lively as y'all have been this morning, I'm actually really encouraged by it because it's been a pretty wild week in the world of the world. (laughs) Um, Right, we again uh, find ourselves on the verge of what seems like World War III. We again are assaulted by images of war and violence and injustice. Um, We again are dealing with fractures and divisions and seeming hate crimes. Um, And we again are left as a people that are deeply suffering and deeply in pain. And so what I want to do today, what what originally this was supposed to be, and it still sort of is, was a sermon about technology. (laughs) Um, And instead, what it will be about is really about this question of who we are. And it ties into technology and ties into what we do with our time and our focus and our awareness and all that. And how do we as the community together, like, find ourselves in this story of Jesus. But I want to start with the simple question of what do you do with your pain? The great New Testament theologian of our day, N.T. Wright, um, on a podcast recently said this, everyone who walks through the door of a church is carrying with them a very deep and profound sorrow. Um, And if you were looking for a cheerleading sort of hip, hip, hooray, encouraging sort of message, you've actually found it. But before we get to that part, we need to acknowledge that like, hey, can we agree that not everything is sunshine and rainbows and roses and unicorns? Although my daughter, actually, the world is that for her. But there's something, there's something about that, right? The reason that it is that for my daughter is because she has not yet experienced the full brunt of the world. She's not lived through putting a loved one into the earth. She's not lived through the fractured relationship. She's not lived through having to endure racism and oppression and a world seemingly falling apart. 
Frederick Nietzsche says this, that great theologian. (laughs) The reason that busyness is universal is because everyone is trying to run away from themselves. Blaise Pascal, who actually was a great theologian, says it this way, all humans' miseries derive from the fact that they're not able to sit in a room quiet and alone. And the late teacher on living a deeply spiritual life, David Foster Wallace, says it this way, maybe dullness, maybe being bored is associated with psychic pain because something that's dull or opaque fails to provide enough stimulation to distract people from some other deeper type of pain that is always there. If only in an ambient, low-level way in which most of us spend nearly all of our time and energy trying to distract ourselves from feeling, or at least from feeling directly with our full attention. He goes on to say, I can't think anyone really believes that today's so-called information society is actually about information. Everyone knows that it's actually about something else way down deep. So recently, uh, one of my favorite theologians is a guy named Douglas Campbell. Um, he's written, he's a Pauline scholar. He works at Duke Divinity. Um, he's from New Zealand. Shout out to my new friend, Josh. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> Kiwis in the house. Um, so he was doing a theological parlor this week. That's right. It's called a theological parlor. And I feel like when you say it, you have to hold your pinky up. Um, And it was exactly what it sounds like. It was some light treats and some drinks and a bunch of very sophisticated people sitting around listening to a very sophisticated human being wax eloquently about ideas about God. Um, But he was making this point. Someone had asked the question, hey, what is the good news of Jesus really? Actually, what is it? And he went through his explanation. And as he was talking, he really just tried to simply like boil it down to this. And he, he got to this point. And he was talking about the crucifixion and how we've emphasized the death of Jesus. And then he starts talking about the resurrection. And he asked this question, what difference has Jesus' resurrection made in your life? Not like in general, in a broad, like, yeah, maybe one day it'll matter, but like your daily, today, right now life. How is the fact that Jesus has broken into the world, has actually experienced a human death, and that God, by his spirit, has actually really brought him back to life, how has it changed you today and right now? And that question hit me like a Mack truck as I'm sitting there on the front row because I'm a nerd, y'all. I was literally the only one. It was real lonely up there. And it actually hit me in a time when I was just really wrestling with some of my own like inner demons and stuff and was just kind of having a, just a gloomy day in the life of a 41-year-old, if you know what I mean. And what difference has Jesus' resurrection made to your life? What difference has Jesus' resurrection made to you today, right now? And so as I'm personally wrestling with this, I'm like, I have to preach about this because God is preaching to me about it. And so, but then we're supposed to also talk about technology somehow. And then all of a sudden it hits me of like, oh wait, we are spending so much of our time distracting ourselves from pain and not acknowledging that God is actually dealing with pain in a profound 
and like final way. And so let's parse this out. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 1, and I want to walk through this text with you this morning. We'll have it up on the screen, but if you could get a Bible out in front of you, I think it would actually be super helpful. There's some under the chairs. You can pull it up on your phone. Yes, even during a sermon on technology, you can pull your phones out. Only God can judge you, okay? (laughs) So Peter is writing to a group of Christians who are like kind of dispersed and scattered around Turkey. Um, and, and they're enduring some pretty significant persecution because of their Christianity. And so he is writing to them specifically to directly address their suffering. And he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is chapter 1, verse 3. Who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so Peter, in this this like really dense, packed reminder, points to these scattered, languishing Christians to what God has done in his mercy, not just for the impersonal world, not just for the cosmic realm, not just for creation, not just for humanity, but for you, for you. that God has caused you to be born again into a new reality. So I, I like to make this into really terrible English. God has birthed you. Right? Not because you're awesome, not because you're super religious, not because you're cleverer than everyone else who didn't find God. But God, in his power, in his grace, in his mercy, has caused you to enter into a new realm, a new reality, a new way of being. Born again into a living hope, Peter says. This is God's act of taking the dead and incarnate person of Jesus and bringing him back to life and using that act of resurrection to bring the entire world back to life. Right, so uh, I don't want to get too far into the weeds with this, but there's this story of old creation and new creation, and Colossians puts it this way, that the old creation is crucified with Jesus. The old power, the way of dominion and empire and slavery and injustice and hate and violence as a means to get ahead in the world. I like to simplify it by thinking of it this way. The old creation is survival of the fittest. It is a dog-eat-dog world, and if you want to have life, if you want to have flourishing in the old creation, who are you going to kill to get it? It's a world of dominance and power and leveraging that power against people in order to, like, advantage yourself. And that world has been crucified with Jesus. But that's not the end of the story, because as John very poetically puts it in his gospel, when Jesus resurrects from the dead, there is a new creation. It is the first day of a new era in the history of humankind. And that new creation has begun in us and among us, and we are now freed and liberated to live a different type of way, a different type of life. 
And so this act, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is meant to be the anchoring story of this community in their suffering, and it's meant to be our anchoring story as people of Jesus in the midst of a world of suffering and pain and stress and just, like, cars breaking down and coffee makers not working and Starbucks lines being too long. Like, yes, even that, where, like, the gross stuff comes out of us at the smallest little thing. Someone cuts you off in traffic and all of a sudden you're now a murderer? Like, what? Whoa. Like, come on, let's take a beat. But this story, this real and actual historical story is our anchoring story that Jesus died and that God brought him back. And as people seeking to lead Jesus-centered lives, this anchoring story makes sense of our own stories. It remakes and renews our stories. It redeems them. It resurrects them. Peter goes on to point out that we have been born again into something, right? So he hasn't quite said the like, hey, we've got this hope, but like, what are we being born to? And so in verse 4, he goes on. We've been born again to obtain an inheritance. Now, so if you grew up in Southern Baptist world like I do, you're about to read this entire verse as like, we get to go to heaven when we die. Unfortunately, Peter did not grow up a Southern Baptist. Sorry to break it to you. (laughs) Peter grew up a deeply Jewish man, and he is using deeply Jewish language. And I have to say, a lot of our deeply non-Jewishness, maybe anti-Jewishness, has led us to not read the Jewish text of the Old Testament very well and miss really rich texts in the New Testament like this. Whenever the Old Testament and then whenever the New Testament, written by a bunch of Jewish people, mentions an inheritance, it always, 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 always goes back to God's promise to Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to take you and I'm going to make you a great people and I'm going to use you as a great people to bless the world. And so our inheritance is into that people of Abraham that is fulfilled in Christ, that we are being brought into, and that the New Testament will go on to say, we will then, in the future, reign somehow with God on the earth. Whoa, right? And if you grew up uh, the way that I grew up, many of you are like, wait, what are you talking about? Um, We'll get coffee and chat more. We don't have an hour and a half to really break it all down. The reality is this, the way that Jesus was resurrected is the way that we are promised we will be resurrected, which means bodily, physically, actually, that when I stand at a funeral and say that I fully and deeply believe that one day you will be able to embrace your loved one again, I mean actually and really and tangibly and physically be able to embrace your loved one again because they will be resurrected from the dead. This is our hope. It's an inheritance in an embodied world to reign and rule in a world that is full and flourishing because Jesus is actually and really its king. And this, Peter says in verse 4, is imperishable. It does not go away. It does not rust. It does not decay. It is not touched by death. It is undefiled. Sin has not polluted it. And it will not fade away. And it is reserved in heaven for you. So the, the, the phrase, it is reserved in heaven for you, is the place where the hope is. The hope, the inheritance, is reserved in heaven. But it is not the place that is itself the inheritance. 
So then you're asking, well, what is the inheritance? What is it that is in heaven that is reserved for us? It is the person who has promised the inheritance. It is Jesus himself who is in heaven from where Jesus will return as we confess in the creeds and at our baptism that we remembered last week. That as Jesus comes back into the world, our hope comes with him. I can tell by the look on some of your faces, we are now in deep, deep waters. Um, But this is actually fundamentally basic Christianity. And this is part of the whole thing that really breaks my heart is, is we have reduced Christianity to something that it is not. And we've given up our hope. As a young person, I remember thinking, man, I really don't want to go to heaven. It doesn't sound that great. Like, it sounds better than the alternative. I get it. But like, I kind of like it here. Like being with people and running outside and feeling the sunshine on my skin, and maybe this is sacrilegious. Y'all can go break down some picnic tables and burn me out in the yard later. That's fine. But then as I read the Old Testament, and then I read the New Testament, and I read the early church fathers, and then I read like the medieval church fathers, and then I read like some of the church fathers from like 50 years ago, and I'm realizing like, oh, wait, that was never the end goal. The end goal was never for us to spiritually go and float up as an immaterial body in heaven forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. That, that even those in the book of Revelation that are in a material place in the presence of God are crying out, how long, O Lord, how long? When will we, how long must we endure this suffering? Because they're longing for resurrection. They are still yet hoping, even in heaven. Okay, I'm going on a tangent here. Not really a tangent, but these are not in my notes. Um, and this is gonna be a really long sermon if I'm not careful. In verse 5, he says that uh, we who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We are protected by the power of God through our faith. We are shielded by God's promise to undo death. It's not because you're morally better than other people. It's not because your theology is better than other people. It's not because you know something that other people don't. It is because that God the power of God has protected you, right? And this is ready to be revealed in the last time. This is, uh, right, this is future. Um, fun fact, you can go at your next dinner party. You can impress everyone with this. Um, that phrase there, ready to be revealed, is actually the word where we, it's apocalypse. So we are talking about the end of the world here. Um, anyways, that's fun. So our hope is anchored in heaven, in the person of Jesus, and that is where it will return. And so our hope, right, is not a place, but it is a person. Now, here's the funny thing about hope, and Paul directly says this in Romans. Hey, if you have received the thing you're hoping for, you no longer need hope. If I am hoping to get a certain present on Christmas, looking at you, Gabby. (laughs) She hates when I do that so bad. like, please don't direct everyone's attention to me. (laughs) Right? If I'm hoping for a certain present on Christmas Day, and then I get that present, I am no longer hoping for it. I have it. It is mine. And so there will be a day when we no longer, as the people of God, hope because there is nothing left to hope in. We will have received it. Wow. But until that day, we hope. We are a people of hope. Okay, verse six. And so in this, you greatly rejoice. 
Even though now for a little while, that guy back there, he's not greatly rejoicing. He is not having a good day. <laughs> By the way, sorry, we say this every now and then. It's important to point out here, like we really love little kiddos around here and even their distractions and their loudness and all of that. Um, the only people it ever really bothers is the parent. And so we feel bad for parents when that happens, but also know that your kids are welcome here all the time, even like in here in the service all the time. Um, it's good for us. I will keep telling myself that as a parent with my own child. (laughs) Um, Yeah. If necessary, sorry, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So there's this weird theology that floats around Christian circles that says, hey, if you believe in Jesus, nothing bad will happen to you. And if something bad happens to you, it's because you didn't believe in Jesus hard enough. Or maybe you've sinned that God will bless you and your life will actually be better because you believe in Jesus. My friends, have we read the New Testament? (laughs) Have we seen the life of Jesus himself? And then he turns and says, hey, you want to follow me? Grab your noose and follow me. Grab the electric chair and follow me. Grab the instrument of death that I am taking upon myself and follow me because it is a dark and painful road. And I think that part of the reason that it's dark and painful and really hard is because one of the things that Jesus is inviting us into as followers of Jesus is to acknowledge the existence of pain and suffering in our world, both in in ourselves and also in the lives of our neighbors, instead of pretending like it doesn't exist or that somehow God has magically whitewashed it away, and if you believe hard enough, then you won't actually suffer. I believe that's a theology from the pit of hell, if I'm being really honest with you. And it has done a lot of damage to a lot of your own souls and a lot of souls of people who would have otherwise um, followed Jesus really well and beautifully. Right here, Peter says, hey, you're going to encounter various trials. And that the trials that Peter is talking about is not actually long Starbucks lines. The trials that Peter is talking about is like ordeals. Like being taken and put up on a stake and then burned alive for other human beings' entertainment. There's going to be some trials that you're going to face. So the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire. See what he's doing there? May be found a result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So in this new reality, we rejoice. And it is here that I wonder how much this new reality has broken through for us. That there's a real invitation for us to walk into and enter into and live out this story as our own. And I wonder how much we've been able to do that. To allow ourselves to be defined by the singular moment in history where God breaks in and resurrects the dead. Peter points to this reality. And while we have been brought into it, In part, it is still future. And the rest of the world that we live in is still very broken. And so we live as people in tension. We live as people in darkness who are ourselves people of light. And this will lead to our suffering in a number of ways, right? We could, uh, well, I'll name just a handful really quickly just to rattle them off, right? There's the obvious one, like, yeah, people might not like you because of it. There's that one. But there's also like, hey, even the righteous people are going to get chronic illnesses and cancer and 
terrible diagnosis. There's just the general suffering that happens in the world because the world is broken. You are not somehow like exempt from that. And then there's also the suffering that really no one likes to talk about, which is our suffering for righteousness, where there are just certain things that Jesus says, hey, you don't get to participate in that the way that everybody else gets to participate in that. I'm asking you to be a little bit different than the rest of the world. And so you, yeah, you don't get to go and have that thing that might actually really be fun. It's really fun to sit around and talk about other people behind their back. Okay for me to be really honest. Like there's something about that like, kind of like makes me feel a little bit better about myself. Like, man, at least I'm not them. And yet Jesus says, hey, I don't, I don't think you should be doing that. I don't invite you into that way of being. When that happens, I'm asking you to actually like not join in and participate. And that's costly. And so we suffer. And this should not shock us because Jesus tells us, hey, I'm a person who suffered and so my people will be people who suffer. I was talking to a friend this week and we were talking about how common it is and how subtle it is that as Americans, we buy into this theology that's popularly known as the prosperity gospel. Have y'all heard of this term? Prosperity gospel, right? If you, if you do things for God, then God will do things back for you. It's this tit for tat thing. Um, it's, like, it's like the crucifixion resurrection never actually happened. Um, but like subtly, this like soaks in to our own way of thinking just because you're Americans. And you really deeply believe that whatever you get is because you've worked really hard for it and you deserve it. And so even if you're not like a quote-unquote person who believes in the prosperity gospel, you think, man, I've got a big uh, exam coming up next week. I really better start praying and reading my Bible so that I do well on it. And it's not an exam about praying and reading the Bible. (laughs) I got this job interview and I really want this job. And so all of a sudden, I better pray so that God can give me this good thing that I really want. Or this really terrible thing happened to me. It must have been because I did this thing right here that isn't directly related to that really terrible thing. man, God doesn't really love me. Maybe if I did this or did that or went to church more or prayed more or read more or knew more, then God would love me better than he loves me now or at least like me. (laughs) This is a backwards theology. And it's meant to keep us on this rat wheel of isolation from God because it's never gonna be good enough. And God won't come through the way that we think he's supposed to because, right, if I'm, if I'm really living rightly, then I won't suffer, and God didn't come through for me. And yet that's never the promise. And we'll live in isolation from one another because other people can't measure up to us or we think we can't measure up to them. And it starts to infect everything we see around us and how we exist at Jesus' table together. Peter goes on, verse seven. So that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which perishes, perishes though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Uh, this is a really wordy phrase. He's essentially saying this. Hey, your faith is kind of like gold and gold only gets purified and better when it goes through a test. But your faith is way more precious than gold. And so as you're going through this test, cling to your faith because at the end of it is something really beautiful and better than you could ever imagine. And it's certainly worth more than your 401k or your career or your Instagram followers or whatever it is that we think is valuable in this world. 
and we will not have it until we obtain the revelation of Jesus Christ. Again, it's that word, apocalypse. Until Jesus goes from heaven to earth and finally makes all things right. And so we will suffer, but our suffering will one day give way to the glorious reality of God's new future. Verse eight. And this is where we find ourselves, right here in verse eight. And though you have not seen him, you love him. If anyone ever struggles with like, right, I'll use some, we can talk about why this is silly language later, but some silly language. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Right? Though you do not see him, you love him. That is the work of God in you. Do not doubt or question your security in the presence of God ever again. And though you do not see him now in your suffering, you still believe in him. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Okay, last little like nitty-gritty detail thing as we're digging through the soil of these texts. The salvation of your souls is a terrible translation, and it sounds really platonic, as if our souls is the thing that's being saved and our bodies are perishing. Um, our souls are perishing as well as our bodies, okay? So the, the word there for souls, um, we won't get into the, the super nitty-gritty here, but both in Hebrew and in Greek, is, is not like the immaterial part of you. It is your, your real inner actual self. Um, in some ways, it's translated as your life. And in the same way that we would use life, not as like, oh, that's my soul, and then there's my body, and those are two different things. There's my life and my body. No, it's like the holistic part of us. This is better translated. It is the salvation of your very self, of your life. And so, as much as we can, we want to get rid of the dualism of the spiritual is good and the earthly is bad, because Christmas tells us that that is, in fact, not God's disposition towards those things. And so, soul here has the idea of personhood, inner life, animating self. It is not something that is without body, because as we know, when our souls leave our bodies, we are dead. And resurrection is our souls being brought back into our bodies and reanimated with life. And so we are obtaining the salvation of our very selves. The way that I like to, to think about this and to, use, uh, to talk about this is that what Jesus is doing is he is bringing you into the fullness of your humanity. He is making you more human, a better version of you. And so who are we? We're a people of resurrection, a people who are being made more new by what Jesus has actually and really done for us, who are living into this story of crucifixion and resurrection. And resurrection reminds us that death is a shadow that looms over all of us, and it takes a variety of different forms, but that Jesus has in fact conquered it and has assured us that your inheritance is resurrection and not death. Okay, what in the world does this have to do with technology? <laughs> I will try to make this brief and really practical. I think distraction is probably the defining characteristic of our day. 
And it, so I want to be really careful about how the rest of this comes off. I don't mean this to be in like a judgy, like, hey, you guys need to get your act together like I do. I am as just, I'm just as distracted as y'all are. I cannot tell you how often as I'm trying to write this sermon, I picked up my phone to like turn on Instagram. Actually. <laughs> um, Otto's Huxley in his dystopian future, The Brave New World, he depicts uh, a future where humanity is destroyed by, quote, man's infinite appetite of distraction. This was written a long time ago. He envisions a future world, not one of dictatorship, but one of distraction, where sex, entertainment, and busyness tear humanity apart and society apart by enslaving them to it. And yet, even the way that we gather and do church, and in ways that I've, like, we have tried to like, rail against in really intentional ways, can often be distraction rather than communion. So Neil Postman um, says this, everything that makes religion a historic, profound, and sacred human activity is stripped away. He's talking about when we put religion on TV. There is no ritual, no dogma, no tradition, no theology, and above all, there is no sense of spiritual transcendence. He goes on to predict, this was written in like the uh, early 80s, I believe. He goes on to predict that religion would give way to superficial feel-good spirituality where church would be about sentimentality, emotions for emotion's sake. This is a religion where the primary marker of, of spiritual health is your emotional experience. And let's be sure it is positive emotions, good vibes for the kids in the room. This is a religion with no need of, of resurrection. I don't need to raise the dead. I just need to turn the lights down, play the right uh, chord, and make you feel warm and fuzzy, and then send you out with some good vibes. And so when we start thinking about the ways that we as people um, enter the room with suffering, with sorrow, with pain, one of the real questions that we have to ask is, what are we doing in our gathering? We are centering ourselves around this story of Jesus' death and resurrection. We're trying to let that story seep into our bones by God's spirit and reorder and remake what we do when we leave here. And one of the things that we will battle, and it's a silly, small little thing, but it actually amounts to a rather large thing, is we spend a big chunk of our lives uh, leaning into distraction. And I think there's a place for distraction, right? There's a time and a place where you need to shut your brain off. But I think we have been captivated by it in a way that's not super healthy, and actually maybe we could start using language of like enslavement too, because we start like losing some choice and some volition here. Here's what I mean. So Sean Parker, who's one of the earlier pioneers of Facebook, he was like the co-creator of it. He says that Facebook, the social network, was intentionally designed to provide a dopamine hit and a social validation feedback loop that exploits the vulnerability in every human being's psychology. It is intentionally designed to exploit your desire to come back to it and feel better by clicking buttons and seeing little red badges and getting likes and such. He goes on to say, how do we consume as much of your time and conscious attention as possible? 
It's a social validation feedback loop. It is exactly the kind of thing a hacker like me would come up with because you are exploiting the vulnerability in human psychology. And the, the exploitation that they went in and intentionally used was the one of the slot machine at a casino. They say, what, what is it that keeps people coming back to the slot machine? I can't remember the technical word for this, but it's like this spontaneous win. Where it's like, I don't know if I'm going to win this time. I don't know. Oh, I won. Oh, maybe I win this next time. And maybe I win this next. And it like sucks you in and it brings you back. And it's why like your notifications don't come all at once. It's why you open up your Facebook thing. It says, oh, you've got two notifications. And you open it up 30 seconds later and you've got four notifications. Wait, someone just messaged me. But that was from two days ago. They're intentionally trying to get your attention. And here's the really just like gross part about it is they're not doing it to connect you with other people. They're doing it to sell you. Because the more eyeballs they can get on Facebook, the more advertisements they can sell to companies, and it is a tool of capitalism, not a tool of rehumanization. It is marketed as a tool of connection, and it is actually a tool of dehumanization. Right, and this is going to sound really terrible. I'm not saying that, like, uh, Facebook is the devil. I have Facebook. I continue to use Facebook. I looked at Facebook today. So this is not me saying, you turn off your Facebook, you dirty sinners. The former vice president of user growth at Facebook giving a talk at Stanford said that we created tools that are ripping apart the social fabric of how society works. He said that in 2017 um, on the verge of a political campaign that was soiled by um, Russian infiltration of Facebook marketing. Tristan Harris, the co-founder and executive director of the Center for Humane Technology said the average person checks their phone 150 times a day. I still don't believe that, but I trust that that's true. I couldn't even begin to count, so I won't. And he says, why do we do this? Are we making 150 conscious decisions? No. One major reason why is the number one psychological ingredient in slot machines, right? Intermediate variable rewards. Addictiveness is maximized when the rate of reward is varied. This has been engineered to keep your gaze. So, so here's my question. We're, we're talking about one platform and one realm. We haven't even begun expanding it to apps and to streaming services and to on and on and on. And we could even talk about technology as a whole. But one of the right questions we ought to be asking about any technology is, is this rehumanizing or dehumanizing? Do you know that one of the technologies that was the most violent or led to the most deaths of human beings in the history of the world was the cotton gin? Because it led to the transatlantic slave trade. And we can now process more cotton, and so we need to have more people to work the fields to pick the cotton, but it has to be cheap or free labor, and so what do we do? And the cotton gin spurred the growth of slavery. It was not the cause of it, but it absolutely exponentially made it explode. I love this anecdote. It's about the Amish people. Anyone know any Amish folks? We probably don't know any Amish folks. Oh, God, someone knows some Amish folks. Um, Pennsylvania, Dutch area, right? So one of, the, one of the big famous things about Amish people is they're anti-technology, which is not actually true. They're not anti-technology. They are slow to adopt technology. And what they do is they sit back and they wait to see what technology does to the broader culture. Very kind of them to love their neighbors in that way. <laughs> 
before they decide, hey, we're going to actually use this technology in our communities. And one of their famous, because I want to get off the social media thing here for just a second, one of the famous um, things that they have decided on, speaking of technology, is like, hey, we're not going to use cars. And the reason why is cars will dehumanize us because they will move us away from community. And we deeply believe that it is better for us as human beings to be in walking distance of our people. Now, I have a car, and I'm going to continue to have a car, but I'm also going like, dang, they saw something that we just take for granted. Last one, Tristan Harris has this to say. This is bringing us back to what do we do with our pain. We're training and conditioning a whole new generation of people that when we are uncomfortable or lonely or uncertain or afraid, then we have a digital pacifier for ourselves. And it is actually atrophying our ability to deal with that. This, Tristan Harris is not a Christian. I don't think he's a Christian. And he's saying that this like, constant distraction walking around uh, in our pockets all the time is not allowing us to deal with our stuff which is painful and sorrowful and all the things. And so here's where I want to land the plane for today. I know this was a little long. Thank you all for for bearing with me. I felt like there was a lot to get here that was important. So we do actually live in deep sorrow. I want to acknowledge that as the like delightful children walk in the room with big smiles on their faces. Welcome to death, kids. <laughs> we, li- <laughs> we live in deep sorrow. Y'all are going to have real, like, real questions about my parenting. You're like, what is he doing at home? Um, we live in deep sorrow, and distraction from our sorrow does not equal redemption. That our distraction from our pain, our distraction from our sinfulness, our distraction from our need of resurrection does not actually change us or restore or remake anything. And we are tempted to go to technology to try and become more human when really so often, if we're not using it carefully and thoughtfully, technology doesn't just become a tool, it becomes something that causes us to atrophy and be less than human. And so we are people of resurrection. And so what do we do with our pain? A couple of really practical points here, and then we will wrap this up. I think we can start by asking ourselves, what is Jesus inviting us into? What does it actually look like us for acknowledge our own pain and then actually open our eyes and see the pain of our neighbors? Like our actual real next door neighbors. Not our neighbors that we encounter on social media that we actually don't know and can't do anything about their pain. What would it look like for us to enter into pain of ourselves, but also the pain and sorrow of other people and to stand alongside them the way that Jesus stands alongside of us? And then lastly, if we are a people who are made for communion, if we are a people who are made to love and be loved, what might it look like for us to lean more into communion and less into distraction. So instead of filling our time with uh, Netflix or with social media or with whatever, what if we spent it with intentional prayer or reading communion with God? What if we spent it with intentional time with other people? Uh, Just yesterday, as I'm like, Saturdays usually just kind of take the day off, but the sermon is always kind of floating around in my head and I'm Sitting there like, someone had texted me or something, and I've got my phone, and I'm trying to see what they said, and my daughter is trying to show me a picture that she had painted, and she literally takes the picture, 
And she holds it up in front of me. I'm like, what are you doing? This is like, what? And I realize like she's trying to get between my phone and, my, and me. And I'm like, oh, that's got to go in tomorrow's sermon. <laughs> Even when I wasn't intending to be distracted, I was distracted from communion. And so what are some real practical, small, right? Don't go burn your phones. What are some really practical, small steps that you could take to begin replacing distraction with communion? If you've got questions about like, hey, where do I start with that? I would love to chat with you. Kick around some, we'll kick around some ideas in our hub groups this week. But I want to invite us as people this week to really consider this idea. What if Jesus really did come back from the dead? And what if Jesus really has actually assured us the spirit of living God that dwells among us and in us will one day bring us back from the dead as well? Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.